This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That joined on Football CFB by one of my previous guests, one of my early guests, who I'm absolutely delighted has agreed to join me again. It's, it's Derek Ray, football commentator. We've talked before, Derek, you've commentated all around the world, World Cups, European Championships. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be with you, Callum. And we were just saying off air that things have got quite busy for you since the last conversation we had a few months ago. It certainly has, which has been unbelievable. And the question I've got for you before we start this episode today is, as a football commentator at the moment with no football to commentate on, how have you been keeping yourself busy? Well, it's been quiet on the commentary front for obvious reasons. So I have been keeping myself busy by watching a lot of news programmes. I have to say I'm a bit of a news and current affairs junkie. So um, maybe from that point of view, it's it's better, easier for me than it is for some people. I know that there are many people for whom the idea of watching any sort of news bulletin at the moment is difficult. But I do enjoy watching that and actually find it calms me quite a bit. Um, the other thing I've been doing is, uh, and this is sort of out of left field, I've been keeping an old-fashioned journal, a handwritten journal, with a day-by-day chronicling of how life has been in my community here in Massachusetts. I live here on the uh, east coast of the USA. And, you know, maybe someday, 100 years from now, a local historian might unearth this and think, oh, that's quite interesting. That's what it was like back during the, the pandemic in 2020 in Massachusetts. So doing a bit of that and otherwise bits and pieces of football documentary watching and other documentaries too. And on we go. Absolutely on we go. And, and today's episode is different to the, the first episode we had was all about your career in football. And today's a My Best 11 special, I thought of someone who could comment, uh, who could, I was going to say commentate there, who could talk me through a best ever Scotland 11 from their lifetime and, and watching football and a best 11 from the rest of the world. And I thought you were the perfect person to, to start these kind of episodes off. And in terms of the Scotland 11, first of all, what formation are you going for? I'm actually going for a 4-3-3 for Scotland. Um, it just kind of happened naturally. I didn't go in with any preconceived notions about what the shape should be. Uh, I just thought about who are the players I really want to have in this team and, and then made a formation based on that. So 4-3-3 is what I've gone for. You've went 4-3-3 first then. Obviously, the question is, who's the goalkeeper? Well, this might surprise some people, and I know some people will take issue with this, but I, I wanted to make a choice who was based on my watching of football and obviously I'm from Aberdeen uh, and grew up supporting Aberdeen and I did think that there were three or four who were in the running now there's one in particular who I, I think may be feeling if he ever watched or listened to this hard done to um, but the goalkeeper I've gone for to cut a long story short is Jim Layton now people will say Jim Layton hang on are, are you sure about that um, I'm sure because I think Jim Layton a good Scotland goalkeeper, and we haven't had that many of them. 
Now, I, I realized that there were almost sort of two Jim Laytons. The early part of his career, I watched him at Aberdeen come through as a young player. He was the successor to Bobby Clark, who was the local hero in Aberdeen. Uh, but Jim Layton was a better goalkeeper than Bobby, and that's saying a lot. Um, he did have his moments of switching off, of, of not always looking reliable. But my memories of Jim Layton uh, with Aberdeen are that he was, for the most part, very reliable and quite inspirational. And the skill he had in those days was he was able to sort of go 30 minutes doing nothing because Aberdeen in those days were the best team in Scotland, had a lot of the ball. And uh, it was often sort of one shot from 30 yards that might come in that he would suddenly have to deal with. And it seemed to me at the time he, he was always up for doing that and kept his concentration levels high. Now, the second part of his career went to Manchester United, had the famous falling out with the manager, Alex Ferguson, who had been his manager at Aberdeen, of course. And um, I think it did affect his confidence. But we shouldn't forget that sort of in the 90s, uh, it was Leighton versus Gorham, Jim Leighton, Andy Gorham. And Andy Gorham, let's face it, had the support of most central belt journalists. You know, that's the sort of the coalface of Scottish football. And Andy Gorham, you know, was the goalkeeper in Scottish football back in the 1990s. And he was a terrific goalkeeper. I mean, nothing but great things to say about Andy Gorham. But let's not forget that Craig Brown, when he was the Scotland manager, made the decision to pick Jim Layton well into his career at this point as the number one keeper ahead of Andy Gorham. And, and that didn't please Gorham. Um, so Jim Layton, for me, there are others you could mention. I mean, David Harvey, I remember being a very good goalkeeper when I first started watching Scotland. Uh, he played for the great Leeds United team of the time under Don Revy and other Scots in that lineup as well, the likes of Billy Bremner and Joe Jordan. But um, over the piece, I, I've gone for Jim Layton. You know, others uh, in the modern day, people like Craig Gordon and people like uh, Alan McGregor come into the conversation because I don't think Scotland as a country has had, you know, outstanding world-class goalkeepers. I don't think you could make a case for any of them as world-class. So I've sort of gone for the goalkeeper who I watched a lot and who I think got a lot out of his career, despite the fact that he wasn't the most athletic, he wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing goalkeeper, but he was a darn good goalkeeper, Jim Layton. He was, and as you say, with the career he had, you don't play for Aberdeen, Manchester United, unless you are a very good goalkeeper. So a very good choice, in my opinion. Um, in terms of the back four, start with the right back. Who have you chosen? The right back I've chosen, this one didn't need any thinking time at all. Danny McGrain. Um, for me, probably the best right back I have seen in person in my, well, I'm, I'm 53. I've been watching football for, you know, most of those, those 53 years. And Danny McGrain was the, the right back for Celtic and Scotland at the time when I was pretty impressionable. Uh, in the 1970s, and uh, what a player. Uh, I used to, when I worked with Gary McAllister on air uh, at BT Sports in Scotland, we used to see Danny a lot because he was part of the Celtic backroom staff under Neil Lennon in those days. And I don't mind telling you, Callum, that whenever I was around Danny McGrain, and he was a wonderful guy, very friendly guy to be around. Whenever I was around Danny, um, I was a bit shy, a bit nervous, because he still had the aura uh, of, of a truly, and I, I spoke about world-class goalkeepers or lack thereof. This was a world-class right back in Danny McGrain. I don't know if people nowadays would know how good Danny McGrain was. And of course, he was um, famously diabetic, so he had that to overcome too. Um, 
he was just one of these players who, when you watched him, you, you thought, my goodness, that, that is a terrific footballer going forwards, defending, doing the lot, normally right back, could play left back when he had to as well, uh, but a right back. And um, honestly, if he were around nowadays uh, playing football, you would, oof, the transfer fee, you'd be thinking about, you know, 70 million or something. I mean, that, that is how good Danny McGrain was. I'm interested in the centre-half pairing you've went for because in Scotland over the years, there's been partnerships that have worked and there's been individuals who you would maybe say weren't great as part of a certain partnership, but individually were absolutely superb as well. So who have you went with? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, I, I had to think longer about this one. I say right back was easy. The centre-back's not as easy because I think we've had some good ones. And as you rightly say, Callum, we've had some effective partnerships. I've gone for two who, when I think about it now, may not necessarily gel together, but they sort of strike me as two resonant figures from slightly different eras, not all that far apart, uh, but I think they embody the, the Scottish centre-half, the sort of the, the, the player who went about his business with his back to the wall for the most part. Now, I, I should say, maybe we'll get to the, the, the people who who were also in the conversation, or at least in, in, in the conversation up here. Um, but the two I've gone with are Alex McLeish and Colin Hendry. Now, um, again, yeah, you might think, that's interesting. You, you could have gone down a different path. The other ones I thought of um, were people like Willie Miller, you know, who was the Aberdeen captain and, and was obviously the, the obvious central defensive partner of McLeish. I just feel when I analyze the Scotland careers of, of all the different candidates, McLeish was probably the more consistent Scotland player. And he also, from time to time, would play with Alan Hansen. That didn't work so well. Um, Hansen, no doubt about it, was the most naturally gifted footballing defender of that era. But ask anybody who watched Scotland in the 1980s, they'll tell you that Hansen rarely played well for Scotland. He had a lot of bad performances. There were questions about his attitude. Maybe that's unfair. Um, he has spoken about it, you know, since that, that you know, uh, it was a different dynamic. He didn't necessarily feel part of it. He sort of felt he had something to prove, which is strange for somebody who, you know, won everything that there was to win with Liverpool. Um, but I think Alec McLeish, because he was rock solid, uh, he was Mr. Consistent. You knew exactly what you were going to get. And just a terrific professional and a great guy. So I, I've gone for Alex. Now, Colin Hendry, like Alex, somebody who I, I know quite well. I've worked with him on television before. Colin, to me, sums up what Scotland were in the 90s. And that was a team that had regressed a bit in comparison with the 70s and the 80s. Our, our talent level had gone down. But my goodness, we had a competitor in Colin Hendry. I mean... Um, so many people from other countries, and I was working in the US, here in the USA for most of the 90s, would say to me, that, that Colin Hendry, I really wish that we had him in our team. And um, again, a bit like Alex, you know, it, it was there for all to see what it meant for Colin to play for Scotland. <clears throat> and that's who I would want in a Scotland centre-half besides Alex. So Miller came into the thinking um, for sure. Um, Hansen had to come into the thinking based on his talent, but... McLeish and Hendry win the day for me. Fascinating. And as you say, I think the, I like the fact you name-checked Hansen and Miller there because 
those were the two when you as soon as you mentioned your two partners, those were the two that came into my mind as well. But as I say, you can't disregard McLeish and Henry because as you as you've rightly said, two brilliant players in their own right. And who completes that back four at left back? Well, I thought that somewhere along the line, there needs to be a nod to the modern era. And I was also thinking through Scottish left backs. And, you know, have we had any incredible left backs in my lifetime? I did want to get John Gregg in there if I could. Now, John wasn't really a left back, but later in his career, he would often pop up at left back. Uh, And it seems unfortunate that there is no place for, for John Gregg. And also... I should mention Billy McNeil because, I mean, he was a legend too. But Billy, who I, I came to know, I, I didn't really get to see at his best as a player. So I, I, that's why I, I left Billy out. John, I did because um, he retired later than Billy. But um, John is not in my back four. The vote has gone to Andrew Robertson, um, who still is in the space at the spring of his international career. But I don't think I've seen a player like that I know I haven't seen a player like that uh, line up with Scotland at left back. And I think we're talking about a very special talent and somebody who, uh, again, we, we, we use the, the term world-class. If he's not world-class now, he's destined to be world-class. And he'd be on the shopping list of any big club in the world. Liverpool are, are you know, chuffed to bits to have him. And there's also a sentimental factor because um, during the years when Rangers were trying to work their way up the divisions, and I was at BT Sports, we were covering many of their games down those divisions. And one of their games was against Queen's Park. And there was this young player called Robertson who (laughs) you couldn't fail to take notice of um, playing for Queen's Park. And I, as I like to do, had done my homework going to watch Queen's um, prior to that game and immediately caught my eye in, in that game. And then against Rangers, even more so, and I think Ali McCoy, who was then the Rangers manager, was thinking to himself, goodness me, why don't we have this, <laughs> why don't we have this guy at Rangers? Um, so obviously I followed him with interest and then he went to Dundee United and got to commentate on him there. And now at Liverpool, I'd be hard pressed, Callum, to find a, another left back who could be in this team, this all-time best Scotland team for me, who's superior to Andy Robertson. Well, as you say at the moment, if he's not world class, he certainly will be yeah. because I think when you look at modern football and you look at the, the modern era, I mean, could you name a, a better left back in the world at the moment than Andy Robertson? And if you could, I don't think you could name two or three better than him. No, I think that's a fair comment. And I think we should feel very blessed that he is a Scot and he enjoys playing for Scotland and let's hope many years ahead for him wearing the shirt. Definitely, and I'm interested now because the, the goalkeeper in the defence, very interesting selections, but because you've went with a midfield three, I'm interested to see, I'm really interested to see who makes the engine room of this team. Okay, so the first one who makes the engine room is somebody who I think has to be there. And again, he was, he was sort of on the cusp of being before my time, but I grew up watching so many highlights, reels, if you like, of him. Um, Jim Baxter. Um, for me, Jim Baxter absolutely has to be in this team because he was a one-off. Uh, he was, if you like, the personification of our idea of the Scottish footballer back in the 1960s and into the 70s. And he famously you know, didn't have a great work ethic. He would tell you that himself, that he wishes he had trained harder. He, had, he could have you know, been so much more than he was. But he was our talent. I think every Scot 
looked at Jim Baxter and thought, that is us. You know, that is us as a, as a nation, flawed and all, you know. Um, but what he can do is remarkable. And, and what he did was remarkable. And, of course, everybody thinks back to 1967 and um, that, that win at Wembley, which was a strange win because I know there were those in the Scotland camp. Dennis Law was one of them who, who actually thought that Scotland missed an opportunity that day to really thrash England, you know, to, to do what England had done to Scotland many times before, to bury them beneath an avalanche of goals. But Baxter had his own views on how you take it to England, if you like. And it was all about sort of having fun and having a laugh. And, and we all, as Scots, can sort of identify with what Baxter did on the Wembley pitch and the keepy-uppy and the, and the driving Allen ball nuts. And so, obviously, there's so much more to his career than that one performance. But that was it in a nutshell. So, um, so Baxter, the, the, the first member and the first, the first name, really, on the team sheet in many respects because he was so much the archetypal Scottish footballer. So Baxter first. Baxter first, a good start to that midfield. Who's alongside him? Graham Souness. Um, now, I, I had to think a bit about this one. And again, you'll say, oh, surely Souness would have been an automatic. He was pretty well automatic because um, Souness was, you know, different than Baxter in so many ways, almost the opposite of Baxter. I mean, Baxter was the... the you know, free-flowing um, artist, if you like. You know, Souness was just the, the ruthless uh, operator in midfield. And he was a killer. Uh, and I mean that, um, you know, in, in, as a compliment. Uh, he, he absolutely was, was ruthless out there. And um, what I would say is, again, a bit like Hansen, I don't think he was always at his best for Scotland, but I'm not going to hold that against him in terms of um, having him in this lineup or not having him in this lineup. Because, again, he scaled the heights. Uh, his, his career speaks for itself. He was an all-round footballer. Um, he had a bit of the nasty in him. Um, you know, you can talk to, there's a player called uh, Sigi Jonsson, a young Icelandic player who was very promising. And Graham Souness really put paid to his career with a, a shocking challenge. You would not get away with it now. Have a look at it um, on YouTube or, or somewhere else if you get the chance. Uh, maybe not, because it, it was not a pretty sight. Um, but that was an element of the Graham Souness game. But uh, he also could be very inspirational. He had a terrific reading of the game, and his competitive attributes were, were second to none. So, so Graham Souness is in there too. Staying on Graham Souness, Derek, something that came up recently was the comparison that's been going around social media on Graham Souness and Paul Pogba. He's said certain things, etc. Now, I'm not asking you to be drawn into that, but what I'm asking, I'm going to ask you to talk about is for younger people who are listening to this, just how good a player was Graham Souness, not only for Scotland, but in Europe, because a younger generation know him as a manager and a pundit. They don't yeah. know him as a player. Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that because um, I, I realise that nowadays when I talk a lot of, about the players who, you know, for me are, are legends based on what I saw as a youngster. Um, for younger people, they are just names or, or, you know, people they see on TV gantries or in TV studios and, and you know, aware of their reputation perhaps, but, but not much more. Um, Souness was the hard man, um, but more than a hard man. Um, you know, he had lovely playing skills as well. You know, he, he could pass a ball. He could score spectacular goals. He could set up spectacular goals. He did that time and again for Liverpool. And he, he really just was a, a sort of a modern player at the time. 
um, you know, he, he, he oozed modernity in many respects. He had the image as well. You know, he, he, he fancied himself a bit. You know, I, I think he probably would concede that, that on the pitch. He, he kind of carried himself, you know, that there was the sort of the swagger with Graham Soonis that you, you didn't necessarily, you know, with Baxter, it was a different kind of swagger. You know, it was a sort of a, a more, um, a more reticent swagger, but it was a, a swagger on the pitch and it was about having a laugh. Um, Soonis was all business on the pitch. There was no laughter with Soonis. It, it was, it was fear. I mean, I mean, even as a Scotland fan, I sort of feared what Soonis might do. You know, there were times when I, I thought, you know, just stay in control here, Graham, you know, because you can see, you know, the focus in his eyes. Um, I dealt with him when he was the manager of Rangers. And I have to admit, I, I was a bit fearful. I was a young reporter and just started. In fact, um, my first year with BBC Scotland was 1986. And that's when Graham Soonis took over. And I was quaking a bit every time I had to go to Ibrox and interview him with my, my old tape recorder um, because I again, remembered him as a player and he was still playing for Rangers, player manager to begin with when he, when he first became manager there. Um, but let's, you know, be in no doubt, he was one special footballer. A special player and he makes this midfield alongside Baxter. Who completes the trio? The trio is completed by a certain Gordon Strachan. Now, again... You might say, okay, well, there's an Aberdonian talking because you watched him a lot at Aberdeen. And yeah, that's undoubtedly the case. But um, I think in Aberdeen, we saw early on what Strachan could do. And remember, he, he was not a big money signing when he came from Dundee. He could be frustrating as a player. And I know that you know, different managers at different times found him frustrating. Alex Ferguson, certainly. But my goodness, what a talent. And, and again, he, he summed up that Aberdeen team in so many ways. He was the creative outlet amid all the, the sort of the old pros like your McLeishes and your Millers. And uh, then later, people like Neil Simpson, Neil Cooper, they were young players, um, you know, going back to, to Strachan's uh, years with Aberdeen in the, the early 80s. But um, Strachan for Scotland, again, could do things that others couldn't. And I think he, he took pride in being able to do that. You know, it's interesting because the Gordon Strachan that, that I know you've come to know and, uh, you know, younger fans will know, not necessarily the same as the Gordon Strachan as a player. I mean, he's, he's ended up being somebody with a, a deep appreciation for tactics. And I think that came from his... Uh, spells at various clubs, you know, Manchester United, Leeds United, and then as a manager getting into the management game. And always somebody who was quite studious about it. But when you watched him, he sort of looked like the ultimate freelance at the time. Somebody who would go freelancing his way through a game, but an eye for a pass, you know, could, could send a lovely weighted ball over the top, could run at play, had that little sort of ferocious style. He had that kind of, um, uh, what would you say, that, 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 that sort of chip on the shoulder that um, maybe comes with, with being as, as small in height as he was. Um, you know, you could see that with him. And he didn't hold back as a, as a person. He said what he thought. Um, and, you know, if you look at some of the highlights from Scotland back in the 1980s, Gordon Strachan is there. You know, even uh, 86 World Cup in Mexico when he scored the goal against West Germany and then wanted to jump over the advertising hoarding, but then realized he wasn't quite tall enough to do so. And so you've got this great shot of him uh, having scored the goal with his, um, 
his legs stuck up against the, the top of the advertising board. <laughs> that, that was Gordon Strachan. But um, no, I mean, I think, again, in the modern era, um, people know him as a manager. Younger people know him as a manager. If he were to be playing nowadays, he would go for a lot of money. He was, he was that good. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. As, as you've said, I've been lucky enough to, to spend a bit of time with Gordon um, a couple yep, of yep. times and speak to him. And as you say, he's fascinating to listen to on the game. He's, he's love of tactics. And and it's amazing, again, for, for someone like myself, as you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s and I've watched a lot of football from previous years. And as you say, when you look back at clips of Graham Soonis, Gordon Strachan, the, the ability that we had in that era in Scotland of the 80s was absolutely incredible. No, it's true. And, and I don't think we look back enough. We don't want to look back all the time. We'd like to look forward. But yeah. it was a special era, the 70s and the 80s, and then going further back to the 60s. And I think the one thing that we would say about those eras is that as a nation, we actually underachieved. We didn't perform as a national team to the level that we should have done. One little story about Strachan, and I was talking on a different podcast about this the other day, but it's well worth having a look at if you've not seen it before. So Strachan, when he played for Aberdeen in 1983, when they won the Cup Winners' Cup, they, the, the key round really was the quarterfinal against Bayern. And the first leg had finished nil-nil in Munich. Aberdeen had defended well, created a few chances, but you know they were happy with the nil-nil. But then in the return leg, Bayern outplayed them for large chunks of that game and were leading 2-1. So Aberdeen needed two more goals to go through because of the away goals rule. There's a moment in that game, and this was the, the, the key to the whole game, really, the, the turning point. Um, and I'll try and describe it as well as I can. Aberdeen were awarded a free kick just outside the box on the angle to the right. And um, Aberdeen fans had seen this before, what was about to happen, but maybe not for a couple of years. But they had tried this before. But obviously, Bayern had no idea what they were about to try. And Gordon Strachan and John McMaster would stand over the ball. And what would happen is Strachan would run over it. McMaster would run over it. And it looked as though they had mucked up the free kick. It looked as though, you know, there'd been a misunderstanding. And Strachan would then sort of wave his hand at McMaster as if to say, what? Uh, you know, what, what an idiot you are. You know, how can we mess up a fr free kick routine? So what that would do is that would, that would have the effect of making the opposing defense sort of, you know, switch off. And then Strachan, while he's still sort of waving his hands, would quickly spin around, flick it into the box, and somebody would hopefully head the ball into the back of the net. Well, that happened. Alec McLeish headed the ball into the back of the net, 2-2. And then seconds later, John Hewitt made it 3-2, absolute bedlam. But if anybody gets the chance and wants to see Strachan doing that, just look for that Aberdeen-Bayern game, Cup Winners' Cup quarterfinal from 1983. Gordon Strachan, in a nutshell. Absolutely. Uh, inventive and mischievous in equal amounts. And in terms of the front three, we talked about the 70s and the 80s. I'm excited about the front three because I imagine it's going to have some stardust. Yeah, um, hopefully. Um, well, it does. Uh, no doubt about it. And this was hard because there are, I would say, five or six that I, I had to leave out. I'll, I'll tell you who I've left out, first of all, who I really wanted to put in the team. And that's Joe Jordan. I really wanted to find a way to get Joe Jordan into the team. Um, I've spent a bit of time with Joe personally in the days when he would often be a pundit on Italian football when I was working for ESPN UK. And he would come into the studio and I'd obviously played in, in Serie A and I'd 
deep knowledge and uh, was keen to relay his experiences of that. Uh, but Joe was, again, a, a Scottish footballer par excellence and probably the bravest Scottish footballer I've ever seen, was prepared to put his head where others simply wouldn't dare. And you know, look at some of the goals he scored for Scotland, um, says everything about Joe. So, so he was very close to, to getting in. And um, I wish I could have managed to get him in. But I've got Jimmy Johnston, first of all. Now, Jimmy Johnston, for those who don't know, a bit like Baxter, was the Scottish footballer of his era in a creative attacking sense. Uh, and obviously, Baxter was Rangers. Johnson was Celtic. And um, Jimmy Johnson just brought so much joy to Scotland fans, to Celtic fans. You know, I was an Aberdeen fan. I couldn't bring it in my heart to hate Jimmy Johnston. I really couldn't. I, I just thought, you know, there's we Jimmy Johnston. He's doing his thing. He's, he's wonderful. You know, he's Scottish. He's, okay, he plays for Celtic. That, that's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll excuse him. Um, he, he just was, you know, dribbler, uh, dancer, um, the sort of the, the, to use the old expression, Callum, the Tanner ball player. You know, that's what Jimmy Johnston was. He was like the, the little guy in the playground who just got joy from playing football. Every minute of every day, you got the impression. And he had talent in spades. I mean, he was so naturally gifted. And um, yeah, he's somebody who I wish we were able to talk about more at the very highest level of football. Uh, he, he could have done it. Uh, I know that, you know, sometimes it happens for certain players. Sometimes it doesn't in terms of finding a different stage. His stage, though, was Scottish football. And... Um, those of us who are lucky enough to see him live uh, are, are, you know, as, as I said, blessed. Um, the, the one thing that I do remember, it's funny, Scotland beat England in, I'm going to say, 1974, I think it was. Must have been 74. It was the year before we got thrashed at Wembley. And um, I remember Jimmy, who was a big part of that success. 2-0, as I recall, was the score in 74, before the World Cup. And there's this great shot of, um, you know, players would exchange shirts afterwards. And there's this great shot of wee Jimmy celebrating wearing Peter Shilton, the England goalkeeper, shirt, which is about halfway down his legs. Because <laughs> 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 wee Jimmy wasn't the tallest, and, and Shilton obviously was. But um, ah, Jimmy Johnston, legend. On Jimmy Johnston... Again, you've, you've summed him up. Legend and, and incredibly talented. Voted the greatest ever Celtic player. That tells you everything you need to know. In terms of his Scotland career, are you saddened that he didn't actually get more caps than he got in the end? Yeah, I, I think it was one of these things, Callum. Um, it was only later we realised how good he was uh, as a Scotland player, or how good, how good he was in terms of you know, comparing and contrasting with other eras because Scotland had so many great individuals, you know, going back to the, the, the 50s, the 60s. I mean, Willie Henderson's another one we could, we could speak at length about and, and he doesn't get into the team, although, <laughs> you know, he could easily get into to somebody's um, greatest Scotland team of all time. Um, I think that's probably fair comment that, that for Scotland, he didn't necessarily do what his talent would suggest that he should have done. Um, but a lot of it comes down to memories. A lot of it comes down to a feeling you get with a player. And with Johnston, for me, it's a little bit like with Strachan. There's just something very comforting and something intrinsically Scottish about Jimmy Johnston. 
Absolutely. And one of the, one of the, the players, as you've rightly said, should always be remembered in Scottish football and talked about more for, for his immense talent. And who's joining Jimmy in the, in the team? OK, so I've got two left. And uh, one who has to be in there uh, is, for me, probably the most rounded professional player who was a Scot who I've seen in my life. And that's Kenny Dalglish. Um, Kenny Dalglish worked so hard at his game. Uh, I, I think if, if anybody were to be or, or were to seek inspiration, let's just say, from any one Scottish footballer, you'd be hard pressed to look beyond Kenny Dalglish for that. You know, for what he did in his life, um, he just was a thorough professional, and he conducted himself in that way, and he turned himself into the very best. And, and when I say the very best, I think. Kenny Dalglish was the very best in the world game for a spell uh, in the late 70s going into the early 80s. Again, a bit like Sunas and a bit like Hansen, not always at his best for Scotland. And why that was the case, we could get into. I mean, often so many reasons. Often it's about the players around you and whether that is a perfect fit. Um, all I know is at Celtic, first of all, and at Liverpool, um, Dalglish could do it all. I mean, he could score goals and his goals were often really classy goals. You know, I, I don't think of tap-in goals when I think of Dalglish. I think of, um, you know, goals from the angle of the penalty area that are, you know, the shots dipping and curving. I think of free-flowing moves that he was part of and then went on to finish at, at the end of those moves. Um, the other thing I think about with Dalglish is, and I think there's something here for all footballers, to, to think about um, the smile on his face when he scored a goal. It was a genuine smile. He wasn't somebody who would rub it in with the opposition. It was all about the pure joy of playing football. And you could see that. You could see that that was when Dalglish was in his element, when he was out there on that pitch with his 10 teammates and they were all doing wonderful things as a team. And, and he was the ultimate team guy. He was a great individual, but it was about the team with him. And, um, yeah, Kenny Dalglish, it's going to take, you know, someone very special to ever knock him out of this team. Absolutely. And who finishes that team off? Well, I mentioned that I wanted to try to get Joe Jordan in there. Um, you could have made a case for a few others too, but um, not just because he's in Aberdonia, not just because I've worked with him on the air back in the 1990 World Cup, but possibly the best Scottish striker, finisher of all time the great Dennis Law. And um, Dennis Law is somebody who, uh, as a footballer, when you think about his achievements, when you think about what he has done, I'm not sure that anybody will surpass Law as a pure striker. Uh, and, and he was a killer as a finisher. Um, it's interesting, the great Hugh McIlvanny, probably the best football journalist in Scotland, full stop. The great Hugh McIlvanny um, said earlier, when he spoke about Dennis, as many years ago on a TV interview, he said, um, Dennis, whose business was economical destruction, and he was a killer, still managed to make economy melodramatic. <laughs> it's a wonderful quote to me, because that is Dennis Law. Uh, you know, he was this killer of a, of a finisher. He would finish with real authority. Uh, he, he, you know, often it was easy chances, put them away. 
but he managed to make them look melodramatic. And um, I can say too that having been around Dennis, you know, he's a, t- a terrific guy. He's got his unique personality. He's got his unique way of speaking as well, which you know comes from having lived in a number of different places. Actually, having lived in uh, the northwest of England most of his life, he left Aberdeen. Uh, he went to Powys School, not too far from where I'm from, and um, I- I'm just very proud to be an Aberdonian when I think of Dennis Law and I think about all his footballing achievements. And um, again, it- it- if any young person wants to just look up Dennis Law as a footballer, he had the, the sort of the-, the the distinctive hairstyle, and he, you know, th- there was the- there was a swagger about Dennis, but it wasn't the swagger of Sunis. It wasn't the sort of the serious swagger. It was a it was a business-like swagger with Dennis. Um, my goodness, could he finish? My goodness. When you think of the team you've just selected there, Leighton in goal, you've got a back four of McGrain, you've got Henry, you've got McLeish, you've got Robertson, you've got Baxter in the midfield three alongside Sunis and Strachan, and then you've got Johnston, Lawn, Dalgleish up front. An incredible team, a team that would take on the very best of them in world football now. All that's left to ask you, Derek, is who would manage that team? Oh, well, that's a good one. I, I think that I think I'd have to give it to Fergie. Now, uh, he was only the Scotland manager for a brief time, Mexico World Cup, following the untimely death of the, the late Jock Steen. But I think, you know, if we're looking at somebody who, who could manage that team and who has managed Scotland, um, Fergie would have to get the nod. Maybe I could go for co-managers, Fergie and Steen together. Uh, that wouldn't be half bad, would it? It certainly wouldn't be half bad. And we've got our Scotland team, we've got our co-managers, we're ready to go. We're now going to face the rest of the world, which is going to be a very daunting affair. <laughs> which formation have we got for the rest of the world? For the rest of the world, I, I, again, I didn't think about this, but I've gone 4-3-3 again. So, um, so yeah, so, so the, the Scotland 11 will be taking on a, a 4-3-3 uh, World 11. And one thing I've done, Callum, is I hope you don't mind... I've restricted it to players who I have seen and also who have played in World Cups. That's fine. Not a problem at all. So, so, so I, I thought I'd put those parameters in at the start. Shall I begin with the goalkeeper? Of course. So the goalkeeper here, and again, there were a number of, of candidates. Um, I thought, for example, of Gordon Banks, the great England goalkeeper. I thought of people like Zepp Meyer from Germany and Oliver Kahn. They were certainly high up on my list. But in the end, I've plumped for Dino Zoff, the great Italian keeper who played on until he was 41. Famously, when he was 40 years, four months and 10 days old, he guided Italy to victory in the World Cup, uh, 1982. And what I remember about Zoff is that he was very serious, um, did everything so well, so professionally, at a time when I was probably used to, to goalkeepers who were more sort of charismatic and quirky and might have the odd mistake in them. I don't remember Zoff making mistakes. I'm sure he did, but I don't remember any uh, grievous errors from him. Um, he had a run of 330 successive appearances in Serie A with Juventus between 1972 and 1983. Went on to be a very successful coach as well with the Italian national team. And um, yeah, unflappable would be the words for Dino Zoff, who had tremendous longevity and was a terrific keeper. Terrific goalkeeper, as you say, and the longevity is something to be admired in any footballer, especially goalkeepers as well. And 
that leads us into the back four. First of all, right back. For right back, I've gone for Cafu of Brazil. And again, I'm influenced by the fact that I was covering Serie A professionally around that time. So I got to know his style of play very well. And, you know, for most people, he will be inextricably linked with the trophy lift uh, World Cup in 2002. And he wasn't meant to be the captain of that Brazilian team. There's a, there's a good sort of story behind that. He had been the captain. Um, Vandalei Luxemburgo, who was the coach, wasn't happy with him as captain. Stripped of the captaincy, still part of the squad. Scolari comes in. Emerson is meant to be the captain. He doesn't make the World Cup squad. And so it reverts to Cafu. And as I say, we all know that image of uh, Cafu. And um, it's interesting that the message, if you, again, if you go back and look at that trophy lift, he, he mouths into the camera um, in Portuguese, Regina, eu to amo. Regina, I love you. That's his wife. So, so he's talking to his wife as he's lifting the, uh, the, the most coveted trophy of them all. But his playing style was so easy on the eye. Um, you know, he was one of these flamboyant right backs, but he could defend as well. Had tremendous energy and pace going up and down that right-hand side in Italy, where he spent most of his career. And that's when I covered him, as I said. They used to call him Il Pendolino, which is the name given to the, um, the express train that uh, maybe some of you have, have taken on your travels in Italy before. And that's what he was. He was an express train of a footballer, the most capped Brazilian player of all time, 142 appearances. And um, yeah, his contribution certainly has been etched in Brazilian folklore. So, Cafu, my right back. Interesting. To, this might be a point that maybe is a daft point to make, but I feel that with Cafu, we look at modern football now, and by modern, I mean, obviously, say, the last decade in particular, where fullbacks really bomb forward quite a lot, and they've got such an integral part to play in the game, um, compared to maybe 20 or 30 years ago, when it was more about defensive structures and, and your forward-thinking players would do the attacking. Even though he only played 20 years ago, would you say he was ahead of his time? Possibly, yeah. I mean, there were overlapping fullbacks in the game at that point, um, but he probably was. He probably was a role model for the interpretation of, of how you know, right-back should be performed, if you like, in the modern era. He certainly was exciting. I remember whenever I, I covered his games, be it with Roma, mostly with Roma, uh, or Milan, uh, I was always happy when Cafu was in the team, as he usually was. I mean, it, it would take something special for him not to, uh, not to be there, something unforeseen. Um, but, yeah, tremendous joy from Cafu, so he has to be in there. The back two, who's going to be the centre-halves? Right, so for the centre-halves, I've done something a little bit strange here. I've gone for two players who, and you use the expression there, ahead of his time or their time. Two players who probably were ahead of their time in terms of how they executed this particular position. Um, I'm going to start with Franz Beckenbauer, uh, who for me really was revolutionary. Um, and especially thinking back, at the time I didn't know that he was revolutionary, I just knew he was a great player. Uh, and you know, his name was on all the, the football boots of the era. He was a real football superstar in the early 1970s, Franz Beckenbauer. He had the glamorous image. Uh, he made football look effortless. He strolled through games. Let's not forget that Beckenbauer started as a midfield player, and it was in Germany that they decided that there could be a new interpretation of how defending was done. And Beckenbauer became the sort of um, personification of what a, a libero 
um, was to become, a sweeper, if you like. But in Scotland, we used to talk about a sweeper really being the other central defender and you know being the partner of the, the more aerially orientated centre-half. In Germany, the libero would sort of come out with the ball, you know, looking very composed on the ball, would exchange passes with a couple of midfield players. It was a different interpretation. And that's how Beckenbauer played the position. And uh, he was just class. I mean, he, he was just somebody who, um, you know, sort of played on his own terms. He came from quite a humble background. His dad was a, a postal worker from Giesing, just outside Munich. He was a bit cynical about football. Um, but Beckenbauer wanted to be a footballer desperately. And of course, he was known as Der Kaiser, still is. And it all stems from the fact that when Bayern, his club, played Austria Vienna in a friendly, he posed for a, a photograph uh, in Vienna with a bust uh, right beside him of the, the Emperor Franz Josef I. And so this made all the papers, and the nickname was born Der Kaiser. And he was the Emperor on the pitch without any shadow of a doubt. Who partners Franz in centre half? Well, I've gone for another player, Callum, who could, or certainly was a sweeper type, if you like, a libero type, but then changed his position to be more of a sort of a modern centre back, and that's Franco Baresi. So the Italian player Baresi had a 20 year career at Milan, uh, was skipper for 15 years. And really for me, Baresi, was the player who changed how defending was done between the 80s and into the 90s. And a lot goes down to, a lot goes back to that Milan team and all the characters who were there at the time. You had Costa Curta, you had uh, Paolo Maldini, you had, um, you know, later the Arrigo Sacchi influence, Capello became part of that scene too. Um, Baresi was just the, the, the very epitome of a modern defender. And um, if you were to have somebody man-mark you in a big game, it would or it could be Baresi. If you wanted him to play sweeper, to play off the other defenders, he could do that too. He could pass, he could tackle, he could do the lot. And yeah, I mean, for me, the Italian influence has to come into it when I'm talking about my all-time World eleven. because when I think of some of the best defenders who I've seen, um, so many of them are Italian, and I can't think of any better than... Franco Baresi. Absolutely. Icons of the game so far. And left back, who have we got going there? Well, the Italian theme continues. We've got Paolo Maldini. Now, again, you could put Maldini really anywhere across the back. You could put him into the central defence. He did play at left back quite a bit. Um, although, you know, not your Cafu-style fullback. Uh, more of a concentration on defensive responsibilities. Maybe more Italian, more typically Italian in that sense. But... Um, I got to see a lot of Maldini in his career, and I don't remember bad games. I, I just remember um, Maldini making everything look easy, and we know it wasn't. And again, he had this sort of image of, you know, class and confidence and sophistication, and even the way he dressed and everything. Uh, but on the pitch, just absolutely formidable. And, um, you know, nowadays the game has changed, but there would still be room for somebody like Paolo Maldini to to do what he did for so many years at an exceptionally high level. With the Scotland midfield, we had Baxter, we had Sunis, we had Strachan, a very good engine room. Who are they going to be up against in the midfield three for the rest of the world? Well, they're going to be up against uh, three really good players. And as good as I think my Scotland midfield three is, 
I think I probably fancy this trio just a little bit more. <laughs> I think even my Scotland trio would, would concede that. So for starters, and again, I've got him in midfield, but you could put him anywhere, really. Um, I've got probably my favorite footballer and certainly my favorite footballer growing up, the legendary Johan Cruyff. Now, Johan Cruyff, for those of us, I was born in 67. Um, I started watching football, you know, early 70s, really keenly started watching football, 72, 73, 74, in my impressionable years. And that's when Johan Cruyff, I think, was the best in the world. I think that uh, what he did on the pitch, nobody else was doing. And it went hand in hand with what Ajax had done under uh, Rinos Michels, their revolutionary coach, and the idea of total football. And the reason why I've got Cruyff in midfield, but no particular position, is that you didn't have a particular position uh, when you played in, in Dutch football, certainly with Ajax or with the Dutch national team in the early 70s. Uh, the idea was that you could pop up, the right back could pop up on the left wing and you know, players all cover for each other and they know intuitively where they ought to be. And it was this sort of beautiful mess. But my goodness, it was actually really thought out to the nth degree. And um, you know, people think of the, when they think of Cruyff, they think of the, the Cruyff turn, from the 74 World Cup. I mean, people still refer to it to this day, and that is a tribute in itself because there are many people who, who think football was invented five or 10 years ago. So for something that happens you know, all those decades ago to still be relevant nowadays, tells you about the, the Cruyff influence on world football. Um, so it, you know, it, it goes hand in hand with the, the Dutch story. The Netherlands were not a particularly successful football country. And then all of a sudden it came together under Michels and the, the, the face of that team was Johan Cruyff. And um, I, I don't remember really being captivated by one footballer to the extent that I was uh, by Cruyff. I used to worship him. I used to have the wall chart um, in my room, the Johan Cruyff World Cup wall chart. Everybody wanted to be Johan. Uh, he was cool. He was, he was just an artist. And um, yeah, it's so sad that he's no longer with us, that he left this world way before his time. Who would be joining him in the midfield three? Okay, I'm going to give you, um, first of all, somebody who is more of a supporting player, even though he was a great player, um, but not necessarily the, 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 the great player in the manner of Cruyff, certainly not the same style. But I'm going for Lothar Matthäus. Probably wouldn't be in everybody's world 11, but I wanted to have somebody to give a bit of bite amid all the creativity. I mean, he had terrific talent too, Lothar Matthäus. I remember watching him uh, when I first started going to Germany. He was a Borussia Mönchengladbach player. He eventually went to Bayern. His, his last game for Gladbach was actually against Bayern, 1984 German Cup final that I watched on TV in Germany when I was uh, staying with a family there. And... Um, I've come across him at various times in my career, uh, on the pitch and off it. And in fact, even in recent months, because I work in Germany a lot and, and he does a lot of TV in Germany nowadays. But Matthäus, you know, who spent part of his career also in Italy, was a player who was a bit like Sunus in some respects. Not an exact replica stylistically, but somebody who was businesslike, somebody you could depend upon, somebody who would do the hard yards on the pitch but could play a bit as well. And I want to have somebody like that in the team. He's a World Cup winner, you know. So, um, you know, his CV speaks for itself. Uh, the, the pride of Erlangen in Franken in Germany, Lothar Matthäus. 
you've got Cruyff, who, as you've said, just the, the sheer incredible creativity. You've got Matthias backing him up with that extra bite. Who are you going to finish the midfield three off with? I'm finishing the midfield three off with Diego Maradona. And um, I, I don't think that you can have a world 11 without Maradona. Certainly somebody of my age, um, you know, Maradona, let's not forget, uh, scored his first international goal in 1979, so I was 12 at the time, and it was at Hampden Park. It was for Argentina against Scotland, 3-1 to Argentina. We'd heard about this young prodigy who was going to play for Argentina against Scotland that day. We saw him for ourselves. We saw how good he was. And um, he went on to have just a, a sensational career. And yes, it's a little bit um, you know, checkered, you might say, based on things that have happened in his career. But as a pure footballer, uh, you know, you think about what he was capable of doing. You think about those trademark moves, the Rabona, which, again, we still talk about to this day. Um, he was just a bundle of talent, you know, wrapped up in one exciting footballing package. And the sad thing for me about Maradona was I, um, I, I really, you know, idolized Maradona. But the sad thing for me was I had to cover very closely the near the end of his career, what happened at the 1994 World Cup. And I say that because I was the press officer in the Boston venue for the FIFA World Cup organizing committee in the States in 94. And um, so I got to know the Argentinian people quite well. I was around their camp a lot. Uh, I was obviously part of the organizing committee on site. And you know all the things that happened with regard to illegal substances, um, they all happened in our venue in Boston. And you know, the, the announcement wasn't made until they had left Boston uh, and had gone down to Dallas for the third game. And the dream was then in Tato, sadly, and they, they lost to Romania. And that was the end of that dream. But I'll still remember with fondness, Maradona, even though we now know it has an asterisk against it. I remember with fondness, Maradona in those two games in our venue here in Boston against Greece and against Nigeria. And again, if you go back and look at um, his goal against Greece, that's the one where he scores the goal and immediately runs into the camera. And, and you can see you know, his face, and people made all sorts of comments about that, obviously. But um, Maradona, a, a genius, and uh, nobody will uh, tell me otherwise. Just one of the all-time greats. I'm going to be very honest, Eric. I'm actually terrified for Scotland that... You've, you've mentioned <laughs> I know. You've mentioned eight players already, and I'm thinking, even with just those eight players in the park, it's going to be a tough, a tough old game for us. Yep. Who's going to be the first member of the front three? Right, so for the front three, I, I've gone, as I did with Scotland, I, I want to have a nod to the modern era as well. I don't want people to think, oh, this is just some old fogey talking about players from the, the 70s and the 80s from his youth. So I've got Lionel Messi. Uh, in my World Eleven, as you would have to have. Um, Messi, again, it's a bit personal with me because I was covering um, La Liga a lot between about 2005 and 2010 for ESPN. I mentioned earlier that Serie A was a league that I did mostly in the, the 90s and into the early 2000s. But then it moved on to La Liga. And um, Barcelona were the team on the up. Frank Rijkaard was the coach. They were trying to sort of move out of the shadow a bit of Real Madrid. There'd been a spell where other clubs in Spain had come to the 4-2, the likes of Deportivo and Valencia, um, Atletico Madrid, but that was a bit earlier. And uh, Messi was, was the great hope. And I remember early 
in probably 2000 and when would it have been 2007 2006 2007 we got little glimpses of Messi and all the reports were coming through that there was this really special talent uh, who the world was about to be um, to be shown and I'll always remember fondly the 2009 Champions League final in Rome Barcelona against Manchester United that was our last Champions League final within the context of the rights package that ESPN had and a lot of my colleagues from the UK were convinced Manchester United were going to beat Barcelona and I think they all knew Messi was good but they didn't quite know how good at that time and I think that's when he really if there were any lingering doubts and there shouldn't have been um, cemented himself as the best in the world with his performance in that game he scored in that game Um, but uh, yeah Messi is to go back to the Jimmy Johnston analogy, Messi is to the world almost what Johnston was, is to Scotland. And I say that because I look at Messi and I still see the kid in the schoolyard. I still see the young boy who gets great joy from just playing football with his pals and doing something ingenious and then having a, a smile on his face after it for everybody to see. Um, so it's interesting just going through these different characters. You've got your your serious, you know, business-like types, Sunas, Mateus, Zoff maybe falls in that category as well. Then you've got your players who just make it look easy. And, and Messi has always managed to make it look easy. And I think as a personality as well, he is magnetic. He is. And, and again, it's the, the question. I don't know if it irks you as, as someone who follows modern football, Whenever Messi's mentioned, I have to now ask the question, is Cristiano Ronaldo in your team? Well, yeah, he's next. (laughs) He's next. So I I have to have both of them. And that's not to say that, um, you know, we want to get into this uh, question that's always asked, who's better, Messi or Ronaldo? It's, you know, what flavor of uh, ice cream do you like better? Do you you prefer strawberry or do you prefer vanilla? You know, it it comes down to personal choice. Ronaldo has to be in there as well. Different in comparison with Messi. Um, you know, some of the same skills, but a different execution of those skills, different interpretation of the game. And, um, you know, Ronaldo as a personality is different too. Uh, has more of the, the swagger than Messi. You know, Messi has, you know, based on body language alone, uh, different style, different way of expressing himself from Ronaldo. But they're both darn good. And... Um, I remember first watching Ronaldo when he joined Manchester United and thinking, okay, this is interesting. This is a bit different. And then he began to play within more of a structure. And then you could see this is a potential superstar. And then he became that world superstar. And to his credit, he delivers time and again. And rare is the occasion when Ronaldo doesn't step forward uh, when that moment of inspiration is required. This is actually a question I've just thought of just as we're talking about Ronaldo and Messi there. The current situation is is a pandemic, as we know. We need to stay safe. Football needs to be paused and has been paused, and rightly so. From a selfish point of view, as, as football fans and as football fanatics, and for you working in the game, one of the sad things, it's strange, it just came into my mind there as we're talking, they aren't getting any younger. And if football's been suspended for a few months and could well be suspended until the end of this year, potentially, it's... Could we be seeing, especially from Ronaldo, considering the age he's getting, the rest might do them the world of good, but also it could be a few months of their careers that obviously we'll, we'll never get back because the joy is going to end one day when they 
sadly have to retire as came with Maradona and Cruyff and, and all those players. Just just what do you make of the situation for, for football when it comes back for those two players in particular? Do you think the rest could help prolong them? It's an interesting question. Um, I don't have an honest answer to that one. I think it depends on the two personalities and their desires and the extent to which a, a long layoff due to a pandemic uh, might change their minds or, or, or not at all. We, we shall see. Um, the chances are probably it will. Uh, it will curtail their careers to some extent. But, you know, I, I'm a great believer that every era has its heroes. We've spoken um, already, Callum, about some of the greats from the, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And um, there'll be others who'll come through. I just think it's, it's been rare to have these two players coming through almost at exactly the same time, almost spurring each other on a little bit. Because in terms of their talent, they both are, you know, at the very top of the tree. They absolutely are, and as you say, to get the two of them at the same time has been has been an absolute joy. Who runs off that front three? Because with Ronaldo and Messi, you probably don't need someone else to join the party, but I'm sure whoever joins the party will be delighted to. Well, Ronaldo and Messi can certainly both finish, but they can do other things too. I thought I would have in there a, a, a striker who, for me, like Dennis Law, goes down as, as probably the best natural finisher I have ever seen. Uh, so I put Law and this player in the same sentence. And this player is Gert Müller. Um, for me, the, the, the best German striker of all time, as I say, probably if you're looking at instinctive finishing, I don't think there's ever been anybody better. And he looked a bit ungainly. You know, he didn't always look athletic. But my goodness, um, he was there when it was necessary. 68 goals and 62 appearances for West Germany. And funnily enough, the goal I always associate with Müller is the goal against Kreif's Netherlands in 1974 in the final in Munich. Uh, and it was by no means a work of art. It was a typical Müller goal. It was finishing off scraps. It was swiveling around and just pouncing in a ball, on a ball and ruthlessly finding the back of the net. think that um, if you want to, to look at finishing with a plomb at its finest, just go back and look at film of Gert Müller. What a team that is. You've got Zoff in goal. We've got the back four of Cafu, Beckenbauer, Berezi and Maldini. The midfield three of Maradona, Matthias and Cruyff. And then our front three of Ronaldo, Messi and Müller. Incredible. Who manages that team? Because whoever it is is going to be very lucky to, to manage a team of that quality. Yeah, uh, that is, a, again, quite a difficult question to come up with one person who would be well-equipped to be in charge of that team. And I'm going to go back to Kreif and the total football era, and I'm going to say Rinus Michels, because I do think that there has not been a more revolutionary figure in coaching terms. There hasn't been one coach who has changed things so dramatically and dynamically. And that Dutch team gave my era so much joy and it was down to this coming together of talent but also the coaching without Michels none of that would have happened so I'm going to say that team of superstars wouldn't go far wrong with uh, the great Rinos Michels at the helm. Two great teams we've got the co-managers of Sir Alex Ferguson and Jockstein for Scotland we've got Michels for the rest of the world team I now need to put you on the spot how do you think Scotland are going to get on? <laughs> 
Well, I think um, hopefully with McLeish and Hendry keeping things tight and Leighton making a few inspirational saves and, you know, maybe a bit of bite in midfield from Sooners and maybe Dennis Law nicking a goal, as, as Dennis is always capable of doing, we might stay in the game. But I have a feeling that the World Eleven might prevail by three goals to one. <laughs> Thank you very much, Derek. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure is all mine, Callum. Stay safe. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be 